champs, the Utah Jazz, about to avoid the upset bid. Malone missing, Norman the rebound. Stockton, whips under, there's Big Bird! Sanda, Archie, Stockton, Stockton, a five-point lead. 40 seconds left in the game. Oh, baby! There's a timeout as Stockton made a perfect feed. As Big Mark slammed it in, and a timeout will keep it here. Stockton with 17 assists. Watch John after this assist. He finds Mark for the about the fourth or fifth time throughout this basketball game. Underneath the basket all alone. John, after the play was made, jumped six feet in the air because he knew that this baby could be over with. 105-100. Jazz with a lead. 40 seconds left. 40 seconds away from the Western Conference Finals. That's Larry Miller, the owner of the Jazz. Whoops it up along with 20,000 fans. Robinson shoots with 17 seconds on the clock. Stockton comes out of the pack. Takes it all away and it doesn't score. Corbin has it knocked away. And again the Blazer defense under the basket. Taking it away from Utah. And it's Porter maybe sealing a victory at the other end as he is fouled. We go on the floor for the playoff run including maybe the most important victory ever in Jazz history, the first ever seven-game series win, and a lot of what-ifs by the end. It's Episode 5 of the 1991-92 Utah Jazz season, the most pivotal of them all. The 1991-92 Utah Jazz season, the most pivotal of them all, episode five, the final episode. The playoff run is ahead of us. The riots are in the rearview mirror, and the Jazz play game four in the Anaheim Convention Center, and they fall. Despite 44 points from Carl Malone, 22 of 24 from the free throw line, the Jazz trailed by 12 midway through the third. They worked their way back when Stockton hit back-to-back three-point shots to close the third and blew Edwards with a big three in the fourth. The Jazz had an 87-84 lead. It narrowed its way down, but the final five minutes, including a questionable Mike Mathis call on a trip on Jeff Malone, led Danny Manning and his 33 points to a 108-105 win for the L.A. Clippers. And then because of the riots, it was a unique circumstance. The Jazz would play a back-to-back playoff game. Game five, Jazz number two seed, Clippers number seven seed in Salt Lake City. And remember, the Jazz in the previous year had gotten out of the first round of the playoffs. But that was the first time in the last two seasons that the Jazz had done that. And they had lost in the first round in four of the five previous years. And now they were confronted with the potential of an upset from the upstart L.A. Clippers in Game 5. And tensions were at an all-time high. There's a lot more pressure, I thought, on the Jazz and the Clippers. When the Clippers evened it up and it goes to a last game in Salt Lake, I was, I was really wondering if they were going to give it up and lose. That voice is that of Brad Rock, Deseret News beat writer for the Utah Jazz during the period. Steve Loom was on the other beat. He was the Salt Lake Tribune beat writer. He remembers it similarly. Everything. I mean, I, Larry Miller liked Sloan and trusted him and wanted him to be the coach, but who knows? If they lose that game, maybe, maybe Jerry Sloan isn't the coach. If Jerry Sloan's not the coach, do Stockton and Malone stay here another <laughs> 10 years? It wasn't just the reporters that were aware of the pressure that had built up on the Utah Jazz as this bizarre series got to Game 5. Longtime Jazz center Mark Eaton puts it pretty clearly. Jerry was on the hot seat at that point in time, and, and uh, we, had to, we had to get out of the first round for sure. It's hard to know because the Jazz would turn out to win this game, but you do look back at it now wondering 
had Jerry Sloan been knocked out of the playoffs for the third time in four years, had John Stockton, in a year in which he turned 30, not gotten out of the first round of the playoffs for the fifth time in six years, and what about Carl Malone, who was fourth in MVP voting and absolutely rolling? Would the Jazz have just stayed pat and patient as they turn out to be the signature of their franchise? Or would this Game 5 against the Clippers been the breaking point that pushed them over the edge? Not everyone felt this pressure. Phil Johnson, Jazz assistant coach, does not remember it in that manner. Our players were so, so much had our back. I mean, our two, our, our, when Mark Eaton was there and Griff was there and then and then when they left, and Carl and John, they they had uh, they had Jerry and my back so much that we really. I just don't think anything would have happened if we lose the series. I just don't. But uh, I mean, it could have. But uh, I didn't lay awake worrying about that that much at that time. I just knew we had a good team, and eventually we were going to do well. With those tensions rising high, the game got underway. And the Utah Jazz struggled early. John Stockton got in foul trouble. And maybe feeling that pressure, the Jazz scored on just one of their opening 11 possessions and trailed 26-11. to 11. By the end of the first quarter, it was 30-18 to 18 Clippers. And the Jazz were on the verge of getting knocked out of the playoffs. Delaney Rudd hit a three-pointer that made it just a 12-point game, but two minutes into the second quarter, John Stockton picked up his third foul, and Brad Rock remembers the crowd. I remember the sense in the crowd. Oh, no. Oh, no. Because you didn't, you didn't want to let a team like the Clippers think, oh, they're going to they're gonna beat you. And, uh, and, and in that game, the mailman wasn't, wasn't his normal self. I mean, he only, he only scored 19 points that night, and uh, Jeff was better. Uh, John, John wasn't great either. I... Jim Durham and Dick Versace were on the TNT call, and they remembered the same about Stockton's performance. Well, it hasn't been a normal night for John Stockton. Two early fouls, and then another foul in the, in the, in the first half. Only five minutes played, five minutes played. Uh, didn't the ball off his foot. It could not have been a difficult John Stockton night. Delaney Rudd would play terrifically and lead the Jazz back to make it a two-point game, 42-40. But the Clippers stretched the lead to 12 by the half. And with 24 minutes to play, the Jazz needed to make major moves. David Benoit started the second half instead of Blue Edwards in a move that would look to be brilliant by Jerry Sloan. But as Brad Rock mentioned, the Jazz All-Stars were struggling. Carl Malone was 5 of 17. He did get 16 rebounds and go to the free throw line 14 times. And John Stockton had 13 points, just 9 assists and 5 turnovers. I mean, freeze the moment in time. It's an incredible thought. Here the Jazz are in this must-win game. Who knows what happens afterwards? And their two best players, who have so much on the line, are suddenly scuffling. But it's a rookie who the year prior was in Spain, somewhat of an unheard-of concept at the time, an undrafted rookie out of Louisiana that made the play that turned the tide. It's all about poise right now for the L.A. Clippers. They went home down in this series two games to none looking for a foothold, and they got it. Benoit for a three. Oh, my, David Benoit. Game. Utah with its biggest lead. And David Benoit, two threes and 16 points in this game. Well, it was going to have to come from someplace. Utah got off to a miserable start. Lost John Stockton, where they were in disarray. Jerry Sloan was deep into his bench. And David Benoit came up big. It was David Benoit's second three of the game, and he had just three all season long. The final stretch of the ball game was all Utah, and they led it by seven with 428 left after a 10-0 run. And it became the breakthrough moment for the Stockton, Malone, and Sloan Utah Jazz.
you can look at this thing and say, hey, those last eight minutes against the Los Angeles Clippers, I think it's very real that you could say uh, nothing that we're looking at now would have happened if they if they give that up. Uh, Maybe that's it for them. Delaney Rudd's second quarter play with John Stockton out looking back on that ballgame as vital as any. But Phil Johnson, Jazz assistant coach, does remember the tall, skinny rookie with a big three from the top of the key. Guy that hit some huge shots in that game was David Benoit, as I recall. Uh, I remember him making some big shots, and Larry Brown got into it with, with the officials and uh, really started getting after them and, and – uh, Really, it was, and I didn't. I didn't think there was anything that they were doing particularly out of order, uh, but uh, he got into it with him. Maybe we were coming back on him, but I remember that, and I remember uh, David Benoit hitting some huge shots in that game. Craig Bowlerjack, now TV voice of the Utah Jazz, was at KSL TV at the time, and he remembers the win as one that solidified the franchise moving forward. Now the Jazz embarked on a task that they had yet to be achieved to win a seven-game series in the NBA playoffs. They would have to do it against the Seattle Supersonics. That's next on the 1991-92 Utah Jazz season, the most pivotal of them all. Today's show is brought to you by Murdoch Hyundai. Murdoch Hyundai is doing extraordinary things right now for you to make it easier for you to buy a car. They've created the Murdoch Share Program which gives you the opportunity to do all of your shopping online for the car. And then if you want the car brought to you for a test drive, they will do that. In addition, no payments by for your brand new Murdoch Hyundai until January. That's right. No payments until January, as well as 0% on your financing for 84 months. It's incredible deals that are going on right now at Murdoch Hyundai in this time. They're trying to make sure that it's the right time for you to buy a car if that's what you need and they can make it easy for you. Plus, Hyundai Assurance guarantees to make you six payments for you if you lose your job. Extraordinary efforts and extraordinary times taking place at Murdoch Hyundai in Logan, in Murray, and in Linden. The needs of each individual customer are being looked at with paramount concern for Murdoch Hyundai. And they want you to make sure that this is an opportunity for you to safely get a car and also get you the best deal possible. Murdoch Sure, transparent online pricing, getting pre-approved online in and out in less than 60 minutes, and they'll bring the test drive to you. And then the Hyundai Assurance, six payments if you lose your job, 0% for 84 months, and no payments till January. Murdoch Hyundai, located in Murray, located in Linden, and located in Logan. Right side, Ricky Pierce. Pierce right to now. Drop it low. Stockton steals. Stockton steals to Corbin. He does. Hammer dunk. At 6-5, right side angle to Ricky Pierce. Low to Benoit Benjamin. Cross the middle. Stock strips it away. Picked up by Eaton. John Stockton. Here's Stockton with the ball. Stockton right side. To the mailman. To the hoop. Get up it goes. It's gone. We're tied up. Carvalho with 36 points. Stockton the assist. McMillan the foul. No way as John Stockton comes up with a great steal there. Mark Eaton was able to pick the basketball up. Now John pushing the basketball ahead of the defense, feeding Carl Malone, who shoots off the wrong foot and right off the pass, forcing Nate McMillan to foul. The Jazz have a chance to take the lead here with 3.45 left. Carl Malone, 16 out of 17 at the free throw line. He's got 36 points, 12 rebounds. Free throw, good. The Jazz take the lead, 95-94. The great sounds of Hot Rod Hundley from the Seattle Supersonics, Utah Jazz second Round series in 1992. The Jazz were looking to win their first ever seven-game series in franchise history. First round series were five games, and the Jazz had won those, but they had never advanced in the second round. And before the series started, Jerry Sloan made a move. David Benoit would start in place of Blue Edwards. That did not make Blue Edwards happy at all. Edwards said, 
I thought I was ready to play. As a team, we weren't ready to play. I came out, and he said I was visiting with Ron Harper, and he didn't like that. Ron said, you guys should have taken care of us in game four. I said, that's okay. We'll take care of tonight. And after that, I just said, beep it. It's been like that since my rookie year. He told me once he didn't like the way I shook his hand. I'm not going to be selfish, but I'm not going to, but I am going to do what I'm going to do. And I've been playing that way Sloan wants, and it's not working for me. So there were little fun things that had been the case all season long with this fiery group as they got ready for the Sonics. The Sonics were not the team we think of by the time the Jazz faced them in the Western Conference Finals in 1996. Gary Payton was just in his second year. Sean Kemp was just in his third year. This was an Eddie Johnson, Ricky Pierce team. But George Carl was the head coach. And if you recall, George Carl had been the Warriors head coach when the Warriors came back from 0-2 to win the series 3-2 in 1987. There's been a little history there between George Carl and the Jazz. Carl, before the series started, said, I don't want any problems in this series, but really, if the league's going to allow Malone to camp in the lane like he did in the Clippers series, then fronting him's not a bad option. I mean, he's basically posting on the college lane. He's not coming close to the pro lane, and if that's the way they're going to let it go, we must react to it. And boy, did they ever. An illegal defense, 10 seconds into game one, and they were called for three in the first half. The Jazz came out beautifully when this series started. They hit on 25 of their first 39 shots. They led 71-57 through the third. And Steve Loom says it looked like a completely different team. The pressure got off, and and uh, I don't Seattle didn't have a chance in the second round. I don't think they were quite as good, but the Jazz got that that got that pressure off themselves and played really well. And uh, and you could almost see it coming, the, the sigh of relief and, and, okay, time to go to work now and not just survive, which is what they did in that series. And The game would get close for a while. At 74-73, the Sonics would actually take the lead. But the mailman would score 16 fourth-quarter points. Tyrone Corbin would add 13 in the fourth quarter and have 23 in all. And the Jazz would score on eight of nine possessions in the final five and a half minutes as the Sonics' defensive option was to leave Tyrone Corbin wide open, and Corbin made him pay. Remember, Corbin had averaged 18 points, seven rebounds a game while playing 39 minutes in Minnesota the year before. He was down to 27 minutes a game in Utah, struggling a little bit in that role. So before the series started, he got together with Jazz assistant coach Gordon Chiesa and credited Chiesa with fixing his shooting stroke, which allowed him to have such a big game in Game 1. The mailman was feeling a little as though the Jazz weren't getting the respect they deserved. Quote, every time I turn on the TV or pick up a paper, it's all I saw. The Sonics won three games. The Sonics won twice at the Delta Center. But right now, that doesn't mean a thing, says the mailman. That was the regular season, and that this is the playoffs, and this is when it's important. Game two was more of the same. The Sonics got an illegal defensive call three times in the first 11 minutes, and by the end of game two, they had eight illegal defense calls. Jeff Malone had 33, eight big ones late, and the mailman had 28. The Jazz led by nine in the fourth quarter, and Mike Brown hit three straight shots, but it got close again with 345 left, but Jeff Malone made the plays late in this one, giving the Jazz a 97-91 lead on a little runner and a 99-93 lead on a floater, and the Jazz had made their statement Brad Rock of the Deseret News recalls the Jazz play against the Sonics. And it was just kind of shocking because they barely got by the Clippers. And uh, I thought this is probably the time for them to uh, to bow out and, uh, you know, finish where they do. And they just breezed through that thing uh, and just just didn't didn't really have a. Jeff Malone's 33 points gave him a platform to make the comment. I've been around many years now, and I've never gotten a whole lot of respect. People always have said, that guy's better or this guy's better, but I'm a low-key person. I just play, and I don't try to prove anything. Sonic's Ricky Pierce was a bit jealous, said after game two, Malone gets the kind of looks at the basket that I dream of getting. Coming off clean in the shooting range, the only thing you have to do is shoot the ball. Stockton does a very good job of finding him. It seems they are looking for him. 
Of course, there were a few ruffled feathers after the first two games. The Jazz had taken 64 free throws. The Sonics had taken just 42. And the Sonics would like to point out that the Jazz had made 55 while they had only made 42. Eddie Johnson said, we got some tough calls. I just hope it goes our way when we get back home. And I hope we don't have to have these same three referees. Eddie Johnson also had some harsh words for John Stockton. One of these days... I'm going to make him pay for hanging around. I'm serious. I'm going to make him pay. He won't get away with any more steals like that. As the Jazz headed to Seattle for game three, Jerry Sloan could tell what was coming. They'll pound us. Carl's strategies are a lot like Nelly's. They'll take John and Carl out of the game any way they can. And in fact, that's what the Sonics did in game three. The Jazz hit just six of 15 shots in the fourth quarter and had seven turnovers. Sloan saying afterwards, we panicked a little bit. Jeff Malone saying, I felt we were comfortable the whole game. We were right there. We were in control. Then down the stretch, we fell apart. It's the same old story. We started just standing around. The Jazz had seven turnovers in the fourth, allowed seven offensive rebounds, and the mailman, who had 30 going into the fourth quarter, went scoreless in the fourth. Said afterwards, maybe I didn't step it up. The Jazz, though, still led the series two games to one. And, oh, by the way, the Sonics shot 43 free throws, 14 of them in the fourth quarter of that game. Well, the Jazz got just three trips to the charity strike. Salt Lake Tribune columnist Dick Rosetta had not-so-nice things to say about the Sonics and their play. What we saw was a game sullied by goon-like tactics, wrote Rosetta. Even ice hockey no longer tolerates this. They don't play basketball here Sunday in the fourth quarter. They play choose your weapon. Unfortunately, Utah didn't bring any gloves, pads, or helmets. Maybe they'll arrive by Tuesday night. Jerry Sloan wasn't too happy with Benoit Benjamin, the Sonic center. Quote, I was troubled when he threw Carl Malone down. That's two guys he's taken out now in three games. That's not right. We wanted to get more physical, said Benjamin. We felt we'd been too soft. The Jazz then headed to game four. But Phil Johnson, Jazz assistant coach, tells us the Jazz had finally figured out Seattle. I think their biggest thing was to try and get the ball out of John's hands, bottom line. And then they would they would double Carl, and they did some di- things differently uh, defensively than, a lot, than quite a few teams. But, uh, yeah, we just had it. We just had a good series, and uh, every, uh, everybody played quite well in that series. It was, it was an excellent series, and – and it was tough for them. Jazz headed to game five. John Stockton had played 43, 42, 41, 40, and 43 minutes in the five games of the series. And Carl Malone was averaging 44 minutes. The Jazz, game five, a chance to go somewhere they had never been in their 18 years in Utah, but they trailed by seven at the end of one. The Jazz gained a four-point lead with a, at the half. But the Sonics jumped out to a 91-83 lead with 9 minutes and 13 seconds. Carl Malone said, it looks sort of bleak. Me personally, I kept thinking about going to Seattle, playing, and then coming back here for Game 7. We didn't want that. Seattle's a nice place. The fishing's good. But I didn't want to go back there and play for a while. But then the Sonics got cold. And in maybe the most appropriate manner. The man that carried the Jazz through the finish line to their first ever Western Conference Finals trip was the rock in the middle during all of this. Originally drafted by the Utah Jazz in the then fourth round of the 92 draft, a former auto mechanic, the seven foot four, Mark Eaton would be the hero late. Eaton had been with the Jazz through all the ups, all the downs, and often been the focus of scorn from fans for how can we have a center that's averaging only 3.3 points a game. And what we didn't know at the time was that due to a back injury, this would be the finest moment and really one of the last moments for the 35-year-old Mark Eaton as he would be the one who carries the Jazz to the Western Conference Finals. 96-95, John Stockton who gave the Jazz a 64-60 lead at the half with a three-pointer, it comes down the left side. They double him on a trap. Up top to the mailman. Right corner, Corbin. 16-foot and no. Rebound, Corbin. Go to the hoop. Score it, no. He tips it in. Mark Eaton. Jazz by one. What a game. 97-96. 20,000 going crazy. 99-98. Jazz with the lead. Stockton with the ball. Stockton down the left side. 
Stockton on the wing. Stockton looking in for Carmelo. Can't find him under Big Burke. He's there. Slam dunk. John Stockton. John patiently waiting for the play to develop. Mark Eaton left all alone, and he slams the baby home. 101-100. Jazz with the ball in the lead. John Stockton with 16 assists, five steals, 16 points. He's down the left side. Looking to Carl Malone, the mailman with 37 points and 12 rebounds. They go to Carl. He'll go up top to Corbin, right side of Jeff. Right corner, Stockton. John dribbles out of traffic. Back to Jeff Malone. Jeff drives the alley. Puts back to Stock. Three-pointer. It's up. In and out. Eden rebounds. But he made a mistake. He brought it down. But they fouled him. They foul Big Mark. Mark makes the free throw. Eden with 11 points in this game. Big Mark, nine rebounds, one block. He'll have another one. And Ricky Pierce checks back in the basketball game for Sean Kemp. Expect to see Sean Kemp back in here any time, though, because they'll need his rebound. Eaton makes it again. Jazz by three. 103 to 100. Jazz with the lead. One minute, 25 seconds left. Stockton with the ball. We're down to one minute. 103-100. Jazz with the lead. John Stockton. Jazz looking to go to the Western Conference Finals. Stockton straight away. The Jazz have never been there in 18 years. Stockton straight away. Stockton behind Carl Malone. Stockton whips under. There's Big Mark. Stand up. Mark John Stockton. A five-point lead. 40 seconds left in the game. Oh, baby. There's a timeout as Stockton made a perfect feed as Big Mark slammed it in. Mark Eaton, in his humble ways, today when asked about it, does not recall those final moments the same way it sounds from Hot Rod, but he does recall the series. When we played well, we really could take apart anybody. And um, so um, uh, that that particular series, and Sonics had a lot of great players then. And, you know, that, that team was just on fire at that point in time and really looking forward to playing the Blazers in the, in the finals. And, um, and so apparently I was just trying to do my part to make sure we advanced. For Jazz assistant coach Phil Johnson, Mark's presence was always vital to Utah Jazz success. Uh, well, he was so such a force defensively. You know, he, he's he's uh, he's uh, the uh, forerunner of, uh, of Rudy Gobert. I mean, he he dominated the inside and uh, ran the floor. People, very few people realize how great an outlet passer he was. He would get a rebound and it was down the floor. I'm talking about he rivaled guys like Walton and Wes Unfeld, really. And people really forget that about how great he was as an outlet passer. And our big thing was to run the floor. And he would get it out to John and then Carl and everybody's running the floor. Thurl ran the floor well. Ty Corbin ran the floor well. Lou Edwards quite well. And so you know, that was, uh, Mark was a very important from, from that standpoint. Brad Rock goes back into his memory bank for some thoughts about Big Mark as well. But you've seen him now, his back and the pounding he took, and he was a warrior. He'd go there every night. People talk about John and Carl ready to play, but boy, Mark, Mark played in a lot of pain. And, um, you know, during that era, during one of those years, one of those three or four years that I was the beat writer, I remember Elijah Wan said he was the one player that he, I think it was the one player he feared. He either feared him or the one player he, you know, he dreaded playing more than any other player. And that was Akeem Elijah. Even jazz fans would grab their heads sometimes and say, oh, no, you know, he can't make, he can't make a, a six-foot shot or something like that. But I, I think they got where they were with Mark's size. I mean, in a league, in a league of giant people, Mark was still awe-inspiring, and and his defense is is largely responsible for John Stockton being the all-time steals leader. Uh, Mark Eaton back there, guys could take chances that they that they normally wouldn't do, and certainly John was a, was a great great player. But he knew he knew Mark had his back. After Eaton's fabulous finish, Frank Layden was asked about giving Mark Eaton a chance, and he said. I never think about giving a chance to Mark Eaton. It's the other way. He kept me in the league, said Frank Layden. We were a horrible team, maybe the worst team outside of Europe. He came and worked hard. He deserved this. 
He lived through the booze and the embarrassing situations in the airport and everything else. Mark Eaton, reaction today when hearing that quote from Frank Layden. That's my uh, my second dad, Frank. Um, you know, he uh, he took great care of me. And, and it was kind of a challenge in the early years of the Jazz because we weren't a very good team and, and uh, that the market wasn't very good then. We didn't have a lot of fans. And um, so, yeah, there was a lot of that, a growing pains, I think, for both of us as for myself as a young player trying to figure out how to play in the league and how to stick around. And then Frank trying to manage a franchise that was on the brink of bankruptcy continually and trying to uh, create some respectability and not only in Salt Lake City, but in the league as a whole. And so uh, I, I think together we helped each other and, and uh, I love But what we didn't know at the time was that this would really be Mark Eaton's last most impactful moment for the franchise. Mark had played nearly 800 games for the Utah Jazz by that point, starting back in 1982. And now 11 years later, his body would finally fail him. With Mark Eaton scoring eight points in the final 305 and Carl Malone's 37 points and 13 rebounds and John Stockton's 18 points and 17 assists, the Utah Jazz were finally heading to the Western Conference Finals. We're on our way to the finals of the Western Conference for the first time in Jazz history. You gotta love it, baby. And that's next on the 1991-92 Utah Jazz season, the most pivotal of them all. Today's program is brought to you in part by The Store, located 600 South and 20th East, also located at the Gateway. The Store is getting shipments with regularity. They're independent, so they're not tied to all the big warehouse deals. They can get extra shipments in for you to have all of your produce, all of your needs taken care of for you at The Store at 600 South and 20th East. And in times like this, well, we certainly need mudslide cookies. So get your mudslide cookie as well. You're locked on mudslide ice cream. And also feel all of the local Utah companies that you, that the store supports. It's Utah's own at the store. You'll see all of the companies that bring the Utah-specific products and support your local vendors. And you can do it through the store. Located 600 South, 20th East. Also located downtown at the Gateway. It gives you an opportunity to feel that great community that takes place at both those locations as well. So stop by the store, 600 South, 20th East, also down at the Gateway, right across from the Children's Museum. It is the store in their two locations. Just huge. It, it was uh, it was like the little train that couldn't. It was, uh, they finally did it. The people were happy. Uh, Sloan, I think, finally thought that, you know, things were going to be okay. Jerry was Jerry we always thought after being fired in Chicago that he was going to get fired again. And somehow, you know, in the world of professional sports, he's, he was probably right. He was he was probably bucking the odds. But um, Stockton Malone showed they could win. Um, uh, just remember the, the, the people being almost like, you know, yeah, that, that that we knew that could happen when really nobody did. <laughs> and and they were getting to a point in their careers. No people wondered if it was going to. I remember the I remember the whole city kind of like when they got to the the NBA finals uh, in in 96 97 for the first time it was it was just a big thing for the the people that had invested in them emotionally so the Jazz had made it to the Western Conference Finals winning their first ever seven game series and now on the docket was the Portland Trailblazers, the number one seed in the Western Conference, who'd been to the Western Conference Finals now three years in a row, and the team that had blasted the Jazz out of the playoffs the year prior, beating them by 20 in Game 1, leading by 18 going into the fourth quarter of Game 2, and leading by 14 in Game 4 in Utah, eventually knocking the Jazz out in five in a series that wasn't particularly close. But the Jazz felt that they were a much better team this year, despite how good the Portland Trailblazers were, and Steve Loom, who you just heard from a moment ago, reminds us how good Portland really was. But the series did not start any differently than the year prior. The Utah Jazz got blown out in Game 1, 113-88. 
The Blazers had 37 points on the board by the end of the first quarter. They shot 76%. Their defense was stifling. The Jazz, in fact, didn't get a layup opportunity in the entire first quarter. And Carl Malone was stymied by Buck Williams, scoring just 11 points on only six shot attempts in the entire game. Terry Porter went six of eight from three, one off the NBA playoff record for threes in a game. And Mark Eaton said it best. We got smoked. How smoked? Delaney Rudd replaced John Stockton six minutes left in the third quarter and Stockton never returned. Carmelone didn't see action for the final 15 minutes and 30 seconds. And Jeff Malone was done by the 236 mark of the third quarter. The Jazz had just played their eighth game in 14 days because of the whole riot situation in L.A. And they were completely gassed. But unfortunately, the sign of a Portland Trailblazers fan saying, if Carl's the mailman, Clyde Drexler is Federal Express was awfully true for game one in the Jazz. Rick Adelman said all the right things afterwards. It's not so much that Buck is going to stop Carl Malone. No one can stop Malone. But what Buck is going to do is have mental toughness. What he'll make Carl do is work his tail off for every basket he gets in 48 minutes. Carl is such a tough cookie, said Buck. He's the toughest matchup in the league for me. Because he shoots the ball so well, he's such a physical player when he posts up, you just have to hope for a lot of help from your teammates. So the Jazz get blown out in game number one, and game number two, unfortunately, is more of the same. The Jazz were then one at the end of one, and hanging tight, but then Clyde Drexler hit back-to-back threes, the floodgates opened, and the Jazz were down 13, 64-51. They were down 10 heading into the fourth quarter. Jerry Sloan said, our guys are probably a little tired. I went with some of them a long, long time tonight. In fact, Sloan was done by the end of the night. His nemesis, official Billy Oaks, got him, ejected him with a minute to play. It wasn't the first time Oaks and the Jazz had had a run-in, according to Steve Loom in the Salt Lake Tribune. November 7th, Oaks ejected Malone in the third quarter of a loss to Seattle. November 30th, Oaks slapped Sloan with an early technical and eventually Stockton fouled out. March 31st, Oaks ejected Sloan in overtime win over the Suns of the Delta Center. Stockton fouled out again. Two of his three disqualifications this year came in games that Oaks worked in. On April 11th, Stockton and Sloan both got technicals in an Oaks worked game against the Lakers at the Forum. But nonetheless, it was Terry Porter again, 41 points, 10 of 13 for the series from three. John Stockton said afterwards, that's some shooting. Some of his shots they hit, Porter and Drexler, they were from long, long range. We've said all year, we'd take a beating from the outside if the other team could make him. Well, we took a beating. I mean, you want the other team shooting from out there, but my goodness. The Blazers' guards were just too much, and the Jazz had lost the first two by a combined 42 points. Carl Malone afterwards said, that's how everybody got their ratings up. Everybody makes their money. They make predictions. But this position's good for us. It gives us a chance to prove people wrong. There's no doubt it's gut check time for us. But this whole year, whenever we faced adversity, we've responded well. Jeff Malone said, in any sport, in any game, there has to be a favorite. In this series, it's them. They're up 2-0, feeling good about themselves. We have to respect them because of everything they've accomplished. They should be favorite. But we can play with these guys. There's no doubt in our mind about that. And so they headed back to Salt Lake City. Jeff Malone walking out said, remember... Mike Tyson was favored over Buster Douglas, right? And the Jazz would go to game three in Salt Lake City in front of the home crowd. But things didn't feel any different in the early going. Carl Malone, who was battling a cold, and the Jazz were down eight at the half, ten early in the third quarter. But while the rest of the nation was watching Johnny Carson's finale, the Jazz finally plugged in. Jerry Sloan says it looked like we weren't going to fight them at all. It looked like we were going to pack our bags and go home. We came out soft defensively. But then the mailman caught fire. Scoring 10 and assisting on the other of basket of the next 12 points for the Jazz. And they led it 83-75. It took the Jazz 135 minutes to get a three-point lead in this series. But the mailman scored 25 of his 39 points in the second half. And the Jazz would have their first ever Western Conference final win, 97-89. to Rick Adelman said, Carl's an aggressive player, physical player. He's going to come across the lane, demand his spot, and we're going to have to adjust to the Carl Malone rules. 
Jerry Sloan didn't like that. I don't know about that, he snapped. I'm not going to get into that kind of battle. And Buck Williams had a few things to say. The refs made me play to disadvantage by putting Carl at the free throw line so much. I would love to see him make some moves and score like everyone else in the league does. Maybe the biggest factor was Terry Porter finally cooled off, going three for 13 and missing his final eight shots. Maybe the biggest factor was the Jazz were at home, where they moved to 44-4 and and undefeated in the playoffs. The fans, though, they still could get a little finicky. In fact, Jeanette Carlson wrote to the Salt Lake Tribune that the next time Carl Malone has his darling little daughter on TV, Hot Rod Hundley should spend more than a few minutes on her and less on himself. She did reach for the microphone a few times May 14th, but he didn't seem to take the hint. Shame on Hot Rod. All right. That's probably the only criticism you can ever give Hot Rod that he didn't give Carl Malone's young daughter enough airtime. It was a Sunday game four in Salt Lake City. Larry H. Miller stopped by early, then left the building and visited afterwards. And afterwards, he was happy. The Jazz hit on 48 of 55 free throws in this game and defeated the Portland Trailblazers 121 to 112. The Jazz had never won two straight home games in a best of seven playoff series. In every case to franchise history at that moment, they'd won the first and lost the second. Game four the previous year to the Blazers, and the same story in 84 against Phoenix, 85 against Denver, and 88 to the Lakers. But in this time, the Jazz led by eight at the half behind 16 points of Blue Edwards. They led by 11 midway through the third, and then with nine minutes left, the game was tight. It was 91-90, and the Jazz scored on nine straight possessions. Portland collapsed, and Utah headed to Portland, tied it two games apiece, two games away from making the NBA Finals when Game 5 would hit. Here's Dick Enberg from NBC. The NBA Jazz Band from Utah. They played some serious music Tuesday night in Portland. End of the first half, the NBA's top point guard, John Stockton, accidentally poked in the eye by Clyde Drexler. Stockton, the Jazz percussionist, unable to return. So underman, trailing, and on the road, Utah coach Jerry Sloan challenged his team to dig deeper. Their response, dramatic. Carl Malone mailed in 38. Reserve, Tyrone Corbin, a career playoff high, 28. And veteran Jeff Malone for 23. And in the final seconds of regulation, Stockton's replacement, Delaney Rudd. Three-pointers stunned, favored Portland, who then, in overtime, produced a champion's response. Led by the Blazers all-star Clyde Drexler, Portland shot a perfect seven for seven in overtime. And now, emphatically, our one win from the NBA Finals. That's right, Game 5 in Portland. A three-game series, two wins to the NBA Finals at this point. And in the midst of the battle, the Jazz lose their all-star point guard. Yeah, I can see fine. They were just, when two eyes were functioning, they weren't functioning well together. So uh, it, it was just a matter of not seeing clearly, not uh, being able to really focus in on objects even that were sitting still. So uh, I thought it would be worse for the team if I actually did try to go back and play. I think it's the last play of the first half because you saw it happen. And then I remember it like one, I think there was a time where you wondered, how bad it was, and uh, and it was bad because I, uh, to find out later, um, they're in the locker room at halftime, and the doctors are with Stockton, and he basically can't see out of what his, his left eye, I believe it was, or right eye. But the, the the doctors are throwing the basketball to his right side, and he can catch it fine. They throw it to his left side, and and he can't catch the ball. He. He can't see it. And they're trying to tell him, John, if you can't see the ball coming to you, you're going to run into screens. You're going to throw the ball to the other team. They're, they're, they're literally, you know, and of course Stockton wanted to play, but finally he had to admit he couldn't play in the second half. That when Clyde had reached out for the ball, he'd lunged out toward the ball and he said he stuck it into John's eye up to his second knuckle. And, and so they go into the locker room at halftime 
And they're, you know, they have the talk and everything and they're working on John's eye. And then John says, let me, let me, let me see what I can do. He gets up and John's trying to dribble a ball. And the doctor said that John can see two distinct images and it, it, his eye is messed up so bad. You can't even tell which image is the double image. He just got two images, everything. John's dribbling the ball with hands saying, I one hand. And he's going, I can go, I can go. <laughs> I want to play. I want to play. So he's playing against 10 players instead of five. Uh, but the doctors wouldn't let him go. And without Stockton, as you heard from Dick Enberg, the Jazz made a valiant effort, but they fell in overtime, heading back to Salt Lake for Game 6. The Jazz weren't only missing John Stockton at that point. David Benoit, whose father had become ill during the first series in L.A., had finally passed. He left the team, and that's what Mark Eaton remembers as being a big loss to the Jazz. During that period of time, um, our best defender for Clyde Drexler was David Benoit. And uh, his father passed away that week. And he's from Louisiana, and the, and the wake was like a week-long thing. And, and um, you know, not take anything away from him because he needed to go do what he needed to do. But um, Blue Eddie um, struggled guarding Drexler. And uh, those guys really took it to us. And I, and I, and I really felt that, that I just remember specifically that series Clyde was the one who made the difference, and, and we just we just didn't have anybody to stop him. The Jazz would return home for Game 6, playing their 50th game in the brand-new Delta Center. The Jazz were 46-3 and at that point in time. But the Jazz were not a complete group. No David Benoit, and John Stockton was not right in Game 6 after the eye injury. Jazz talk about how his eyes improving. He's going to play. Nothing, no problem. Which is kind of the Jazz Stockton way is they downplay injuries. Well, Stockton in Game Six shoots five of nineteen, one of eight from three, and uh, just wasn't. And I saw his eye. His eye looked like like you can imagine. Like it was all bloodshot and bloody and discolored and and uh, uh, fine line between winning the championship in the NBA. Things things like that are. Are, are difference makers when when one of the great players of all time gets poked in the eye in game five and can't play the second half and is totally, not totally, but very much ineffective in game six. The Jazz actually started well in game six. They led 21 to eight. The second half, the offense just went dry. They got nine second half field goals, shot 22% and scored just 38 points. John Stockton, as Steve mentioned, five of 19. Jeff Malone, seven of 17. And when Clyde Drexler hit back-to-back threes with 5.14 left to put the Blazers up nine, the Jazz dream of an NBA final was over. The 91-92 season was a breakthrough for the Jazz. The franchise was in a completely different spot than it was when the year started. But for those most intimately involved, Mark Eaton and Phil Johnson, it felt very disappointing and a huge what-if when this series came to an end. When I look back at my whole career, that to me was one of the most disappointing series. I mean, obviously losing the first round, you know, time and time again was very frustrating. But that time we were so close. We were knocking on the door of going to the finals. And and we played the Bulls so well that year. And we just couldn't get past those guys in Portland to get there because I really felt like we had, we had had a great shot at the championship that year if we could have gotten out of the, of, the, of the conference finals. You get to the Western Conference Finals, you know, and that's uh, that's quite a that's quite an achievement. Obviously, you want to play for the world championship. That's what your goal is. But you know, you you start the year out, and then, like I said, we had uh, lost in the first round in the two years before that, and so that was a big thing for us, uh, for the confidence of the players as much as anything, you know, and to get uh, some of our younger players better and and that type of thing. And uh, so it was a it was a big thing for us to get to the conference finals we were very disappointed because we actually felt like that we had a, probably a better team than, than Portland but uh, but uh, you know you're going to feel that way their, their record was a little bit better than ours but it was very close but anyway it was uh, uh, the home court advantage worked well in their favor despite the loss to the Blazers the Jazz were a different team by the end of 1992 and what a year it had been from the opening of preseason in which they let Daryl Griffith go to the trade of Thurl Bailey to the stunning Magic Johnson announcement. An up-and-down season that led the Jazz back to being on top of the Midwest Division. Then the riots in Los Angeles 
derailing the playoffs regular pattern and maybe causing fatigue that would bite them later by the time they got to Portland. A poke in the eye of John Stockton leaves them wondering what if, but on the other end, a game five win over the Clippers that was in doubt that could have led to a much bigger what if. The bottom line was the Jazz had now built the foundation that would eventually lead them to two NBA finals, lead them to the names of John Stockton, Carl Malone, Jerry Sloan, up in the rafters, later to be joined by Jeff Hornacek. The season of 1991-92 was one that changed the Jazz trajectory forever in a positive light. Our guests of the series, Ron Boone, Craig Bowlerjack, Steve Loom, all remember it that way. They were a totally different basketball team once uh, during the course of the year when a couple of when a, when a trade was made, they bring in the Jazz didn't have a, a, a very good perimeter shooting team, so they get they bring in uh, Tyrone Corbin, who gave them a boost as far as the, the perimeter game was concerned. So the, the 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 game for them started to change, and the way they play started to change because now there wasn't a lot of double teaming on Carl Malone. Carl was a very good passer; he'd get the basketball out and make it, you know, uh, make some make some perimeter shots. But the makeup of that team started to change when when the, when those two trades were made and then they start to build on that eventually a couple of years later after that getting to the point where they can go to the west to the nba final i thought it was a turning point for jerry confidence for the fan base and also where john and carl were finally put on a page in the nba of legitimate all-stars and what would become the, the, the pick and roll, the Stockton to Malone, as Hot Rod would call. Stockton to Malone, Stockton to Malone. I mean, that is forever uh, will be echoed through jazz lore and jazz history. You could see that they were very close, and uh, uh, the, the fans' reaction to them and embracing the new building, it just it felt like a really big league team. It, it felt like a really big-time franchise after the 92 playoffs to me, I, I thought, you know, you're, you're covering, you're covering maybe not the Yankees, but you're covering the Orioles or you're covering the Dodgers. And uh, that's, that's kind of the memory I have is that was a, that was a big time run and by a, by a team that's still going to get better, even though they were, their stars were starting to get a little older. Big time. Indeed. The 1991, 92 Utah jazz season. The most pivotal of them all. Thank you for taking this journey with us. Special thank you to the Salt Lake Tribune for access to their archives and to Joe Baird, their sports editor. Thanks to Brad Rock and Steve Loom for over an hour of their time. To Phil Johnson, to Mark Eaton, to Craig Bullerjack, to Ron Boone for all sitting down with me to share their memories of the 91-92 season. And thank you for tuning in to this five-episode journey as we look back on jazz history. Here's for another great day inside the now vivid smart home arena will all of us cheering the next chapter of jazz basketball until then i'm david Locke. thanks for tuning in